0: By the Freedom Times newspaper and American Freedom US. It's great to have your company. And for more great company, please join us in the chat room, the Freedom Times. And I want you to jot down our call in number today, 512 248 8252. I'm Patricia Aiken, and the founder and editor of the Freedom Times is here with me. Hey, Don, Mr. Don Wassel. How are you hi, doing, hi, Don? Patricia.
1: I'm doing good, coming to you once again via good old uh, landline, unfortunately, but we do the best we can, but I, I did uh, sign up for Tango today, so I have a uh, username on there, and hopefully some people will get on there during the show and, and chat.
0: All right, awesome. Yeah, we had some great chatters last week. Uh, it, it, it was a few challenges getting the May issue out, but you persevered, Don. Hats off to you.
1: Yeah, a lot of challenges. I mean, it, it, it was something else. But yeah, it's out, and uh, on the front cover is an article by someone named Patricia Aiken called "Weaponizing oh Our Food." So, uh, from what I understand, that's going to be quite appropriate to our guest and our what we're going to talk about today.
0: Well, it sure is, and I'm super excited about our guest today. It's Mr. Jason Rick. He's a first-generation rancher from Colorado's western slope. I could say former U.S. Marine, but if you know Marines, there's never anything former about them. Uh, from the Marines, he followed his dad Ken's mining footsteps, spending 15 years underground, with many of them is the youngest shift supervisor in the industry. He and his wife Teresa have two children, Lexi and Will, who they've raised to be independent thinkers and leaders. And I want to give a big shout out and congratulations to, to Lexi, who just graduated from her college nursing program last week. Right on, girl. And while Teresa's job as an oncology nurse navigator helps people recover from cancer, Jason is helping recover the Earth's microbiome, producing food that supports the land and health. Um, the good news is if you live in Colorado, you can get some of his, uh, their fabulous beef. The bad news is it's only available there. And I recently had the privilege of interviewing Jason for a feature article for the Fall Range magazine. So, Don, why don't you welcome Freedom Advocate, Mr. Jason Rick, to the Freedom Times News Hour?
1: Hey, Jason, great to have you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say. Uh, in addition to Patricia writing a great article about weaponizing our food for the current issue of the of Freedom Times, uh, AmericanFreedomNews.us has an article uh, that I posted today about... Uh, let me find it here. Oh, it's called Will Meet Be Banned? And it is by uh Dr. I think it's Dr. Joseph Mercola, who's um uh, who always backs up what he writes with a lot of links and, and footnotes and things like that. So welcome to the show and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey Jason. Yeah, this is um Hey, how big, are you, big, Patricia? I'm doing awesome and I'm so excited you were able to come on today, Jason. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Hey listen, um get started. Um let's let's talk about observational science for to start out.
2: That sounds great. You know, my my grandfather grew up in the San Luis Valley of Colorado in a teeny little town called Villa Grove, and his father had a sheep ranch, which they lost in the Great Depression. They wound up back with the home place, and the thing that he continued to tell me as a little boy Um, who spent summers on their small farm in Oasis, Colorado, is you just have to pay attention to what's happening around you. You know, you have to look at the animals, you have to look at the land, you have to look at the plants, and they will all tell you if they're in need of something. You know, certain weeds grow in areas that are devoid of certain minerals and certain nutrients, and they will tell you what you need to do to... um, to improve the soil and also to have the healthiest animals that you can have. If you leave something in one pasture all the time, you can see the negative effects of that, whereas if you move them around or if you improve the soil through natural uh, biological amendments, whether it's chicken litter, cow manure, sawdust, you know, and back when we used to process sugar beets here in Delta County, you could use sugar beet mash, Um, to amend soil, you could use uh, spent brewer's grains, you could use waste fruit. There's so many things that you can use, you know, that are natural biologicals to improve the soil. And, And so what I realized in all of that teaching and sharing that my grandfather was giving to me, because I will tell you this, there are 29 cousins in our generation. None of them were interested in agriculture at all. And me showing a little bit of interest, my grandfather poured everything that he knew and that he'd learned over his lifetime into me with hopes that someday I would be able to do it myself. And so through all of those observations, I'm like, well, this combines the human condition with science, which will then build you this observational science. Let's use observation as well. We can smell touch, taste, feel, hear, and combine that with science to improve the land without all of the modern amenities, without all of the, you know, soil analysis, forage analysis, uh, liver biopsies, all of the things. Everyone wants numbers. They are, they're they all chasing numbers, whereas we need to step back and just pay attention to what's happening around us and then make our decisions based on the things that we can truly you know, prove with our own practices.
0: Well, that's awesome, Jason. And, you know, I'm, I think this applies not only to ranching, but even to people that have home gardens. I mean, they, they really need to, you know, look and see some of the things that they can do along the, these lines too. But you have, um you have a clientele that's um, really extremely enthusiastic about the, the produce that, that you, you sell them. And why is that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I preach is we can vote with our feet. Like if we don't like something that's happening in a certain area, we can move away, but we can also vote with our dollars. And so most of my customers are either super aware of what factory farming has done to the quality of food and what healthy diet can do to improve the quality of their lives. And so therefore, they support me because I do it the way that they think is the best, which I have reverted back to the way that my grandfather did and my great grandfather did, is let the animals express their own natural behaviors. And that also includes their resiliency, their adaptability, you know, we're using no vaccines, we're using no pharmaceuticals, um, and we're only keeping the animals that thrive in our environment, and then saving replacement heifers out of them. So our herd immunity continues to build, and all of my customers' herd immunity, you know, none of them just threw themselves at what Big Pharma was telling us we needed to do. They're like, well, let's Let's heal ourselves through what we eat and let's build our resiliency through what we eat versus propping it up with a crutch, um, which we later found out was actually way more detrimental than it was positive to anybody's health. And so they prioritize that, supporting the guy who's raising that nutrient-dense, pure animal protein um, without any of those chemical inputs because... We are what we eat eats. And so if you're yes. feeding your cattle byproducts, if you're, if you're propping them up with pharmaceuticals, there's a pretty good chance that that is transmitted into their meat and then it's transmitted into your body as well. So by us doing what we're doing, my customers are choosing to be healthy on the front end, which will then lead them to a longer, healthier life in the back end versus just relying on pharmaceuticals to drag on a long, miserable life propped up by handfuls and handfuls of pills
0: yeah you can't there's no way you can poison your way to health it's just not possible
2: then that's totally Sounds accurate big, big, and that's I walk the line between between like this regenerative hippie cowboy uh just complete um I don't mind rocking the boat, and, but I, I am one of those guys that puts my money where my mouth is. And I want to show anyone and everyone how it can be done without uh, succumbing to the, the national narrative of how so many other people do it. But on the same token, I see where there are some practices that can benefit some people. But that's a very small minority. The majority of Americans and majority of humans, if they chose to eat well, get some sunshine and some exercise, they're going to essentially reverse so many of their biological ails just by things that they can do. But they're lazy. They want to go to the doctor and get a pill for whatever it is that they just refuse to do themselves.
0: Right. Well, I don't think that's any of our listeners. (laughs) I think they're well, that's all fantastic.
2: Yeah, well exactly. that, that, I mean then I'm preaching to the
0: choir. Oh abs- absolutely. You're preaching to the choir here for sure. So let's talk about let's give them some ammunition to um to about supermarket beef and what the difference is when you buy, say, you know, two pounds of ground beef or five pounds of ground beef in the grocery store and what it's like when you buy it from someone, say like yourself or through the beef initiative. H-beef as opposed
2: yeah, that, to... Absolutely. So, so right now, the U.S. currently imports 1.47 million metric tons of beef. And almost all of that is lean trim or some of those sub-Saharan breeds of cattle from Brazil and Australia. And what they do with that super lean beef or that lean trim, which would be huge cargo containers of just lean meat, um, deboned, is they take and they blend that with the surplus of the wasted fat that comes from our morbidly obese feedlot-fed cattle. And they mix that together, and that is typically what the ground beef is that you're eating in the grocery store. Um, Years ago, I think it's been probably five years ago now, one of the land-grant universities, when they started getting real heavy into DNA testing, bought a one-pound package of ground beef from the grocery store and found that there were 70 separate DNAs represented in that one pound of ground beef. So you look at this big factory processing facility that's bringing in these cargo containers of trimmed beef, and they're dumping in giant vats, and then they're taking the trim from our feedlot cattle and dumping it together and then mixing it and grinding it all together, and it just comes out the other end as this, you know, mixed-up amalgamy of multiple animals from multiple countries. That oftentimes is what you're buying in the grocery store for ground beef. And then, of course, uh, that also is what goes directly into your school food programs and a lot of those WIC-supported um, inner-city food programs. So we are essentially poisoning the, the, the most um, easily influenced and possibly negatively health-deprived um, people by sending all of that cheap, Uh, multinational ground beef directly to them. The other thing is, is because they're processing at such a high rate, if they don't have chillers on the grinders, the friction caused by the grinding action makes a tremendous amount of heat, so they will actually dump ice into the grind while they're grinding, and so if you've ever noticed, which I've done this side-by-side comparison with our ground beef, I will hand-pressed patties of store-bought meat and I will put them on the grill next to our patties and you can see how much more ground beef and how much bigger the patties stay with our ground beef versus the store-bought because a lot of it was ice that was ground into it that cooks away so that's that's the biggest thing the other thing is most of the big slaughterhouses after they kill the animal they spray them down with an acid solution as like a antibacterial, antimicrobial, which is really unnecessary. But why they do that is it allows them to not handle the carcasses as well and not as clean as they would otherwise. And so it gives them a little band-aid in case there's a hiccup somewhere along the way. Whereas with our bees, especially when we custom kill on farm, um, they aren't they aren't treated, sprayed with anything and... So they essentially are killed on place. We eviscerate skin, de-head, de-foot. All the usable organs go with the carcass into the refrigerator truck, and then they go to the butcher and hang and dry age for a minimum of 14 days. And that gives me the opportunity to compost the off-fall that's not um, usable here on farm and spread those nutrients back out on our land.
0: Well, that's that's awesome. And you know, dry aging the beef. I heard you and Cole Bolton have a great conversation about this. And Cole said that hanging beef, um, a side of beef, would lose like two to five pounds uh, per day of of moisture out of it.
2: That's and it's and it's actually two to five percent.
0: Oh, two to five
2: percent. So, okay. The, yeah. So so if you look at um, well, the human body, you know, is about eighty percent water. So if you look at that from the standpoint of hanging halves of beef, it makes a pretty hard skin on the outside of it fairly rapidly, and then that fat cover locks the moisture in as well. But anywhere that you've sawed it, like right down the backbone, where you have got T-bones on either side, um, it'll actually leach through the bone. But, yeah, it's 2 to 5%, and that, that's almost within the first day, and then it slows down after that because that hard skin on the carcasses holds that moisture in, which also allows the beneficial bacteria that are breaking down the fibers of meat to make it more tender. So the longer it it hangs, the more tender it is, but also the less finished uh, pounds of cuts you get when you finally do cut it up.
0: So that means uh, when you have a steak that you can cut with a fork, that that's aged beef.
2: That's correct. And if you look at a lot of these big slaughterhouses that are doing 5,000 a day, they do what is called wet aged, like it will hang and cool for 24 hours to 48 hours. And then it's either take they take the hanging halves, put them in a truck and haul them to another further processing facility, or they will cut them into uh, primals, put them inside a plastic bag or a a waxed um, lined box and then ship them somewhere else. And so they're doing what's called wet aging because it's the moisture that's trapped in those primals or in a plastic bag because sometimes they'll add a little bit of salt water, and they're wet aging it. So oftentimes the stuff that you buy in the grocery store gets most of its aging in a truck on its way from point A to point B. So you don't have that controlled dry aging temperature that you do when you buy it from a small butcher where it's hanging in the same place with the exact same humidity, exact same temperature, um, getting that good uniform aging. And then they'll cut it into the final cuts and put it in a styrofoam tray, and then it will continue to age um, in the packaging. And so, you know, that's one of the, the things that I preach about shaking your rancher's hand and buying directly from your rancher is there aren't multiple touch points. It goes from my farm to the butcher, and then right back to the, the consumer, whereas that conventional beef, you know, on average, it's 1,250 miles per animal before it gets to the grocery store. So if you look at that from a stressed standpoint, if you look at that from a fuel standpoint, you look at that from a, a cleanliness, Cause who knows, maybe one of those butchers somewhere for about to wash his hands or maybe got a cut or whatever. There are so many touch points and potential for negative human health along all of those steps in the supply chain. Whereas when you buy directly from the rancher, you know, there's three steps at most, which is, I mean, that's why you got to get out and shake your rancher's hand.
0: That's right. I believe I, I agree 1000%. And, um, so I want to ask you, I maybe jumped ahead of this talking about the the, the aging process and, and how your meat is processed. And we don't even have time to go into the USDA and how they put a USDA stamp making people think that all the beef they're buying is from the U.S. When that's completely wrong, about 95% comes from elsewhere that you're buying in a grocery store. So just let's back up a little bit and talk about feedlot beef. Really, after our conversation we had about this, I look at that as frank and beef now.
2: Right. Well, and, and the reason that feedlots are located where they are is because that's the cheapest inputs for feed that you can find. So oftentimes you will have a feedlot near a um, candy factory or a cotton gin or a brewery, distillery, or a um, ethanol plant because the the less freight you have to have for your feed stuffs, the more profitability there is in the feeding. And so, the other crazy thing is, is um, they feed a lot of pelletized chicken litter. So you'll have a, a, a laying house or a um, meat bird operation, and when they clean the the Barns out in between batches of chickens, they run all of that chicken litter through a pelletizer, and that will become the protein source of the total mixed ration that they're feeding in the feedlot. And so if you you look at the antibiotics that automatically go into a lot of our poultry, then that goes right into the feedstuffs and then it's fed to cattle. And so it may be a sub-therapeutic level but it is still there. And that's something that's not disclosed in any of the feed rations that you read about. But it, it's, it's cheap feed. And unfortunately, we've, we've um, trained our consumers in the US that food should be cheap. Whereas, you know, it was only 40 or 50 years ago that 20% of your annual budget went to buying food. And now it's down to about twelve percent of your budget. So everybody chooses buy the budget. food for me, <laughs> and and, and is, me neither. Uh-huh. I mean, my wife has gone um, total animal based. So we do raw dairy, we do real cheese. Um, we have a neighbor that raises organic eggs, um, and of course we eat our own beef. And we started raising our own hogs, and so. It, it sounds like it's expensive until you actually sit down and break out um, how many fewer over-the-counter medications. Like, we don't have upset stomachs, so you're not taking any of that stuff. I don't struggle with, you know, inflammatory response. I mean, I was crushed in the coal mines and broke both of my legs about 20 years ago now. And when I was eating a lot of sugar and a lot of garbage and drinking a lot of soda, I, they would it would bother me. My legs would bother me. And since we've, I've cut all the seed oils out, cut all the sugars and 95% of the processed grains out of my diet, they don't hardly bother me unless I have one of those 20-mile hike, fix-and-fence days, then it's a lot of it's just because I'm tired. But it's one of those things of where we have to wrap people's minds around. You can either pay for it now by eating well, or you can pay for it later by living miserably in your golden years. And golden is in air quotes, right? Because our right. metabolic health doesn't get better the older we get.
0: Exactly right. And so that's how, that's how I feel about feeding my dog. I, I feed him raw beef. And you know other raw foods that I can get. He likes elk and venison best, but <laughs> we don't live in Montana anymore. So I figure I can either pay, you know feed them, pay, pay pay it now in food, or pay it later at the vet.
2: And that's totally accurate. I mean, and we we talk about that. I have a handful of people that feed our ground beef to their dogs. And when I first heard about it, I thought they were in they were crazy, right? But then when I got to looking at all the problems that they've had with their animals previously, I'm like, well, it totally makes sense. And that's, and that's talking to people about like the carnivore diet and how they've, they've cured their ulcerative colitis, how they've, you know, cured themselves off with diabetes medication. I mean, it's just like one after another, after another, after another, you know, and, and, it completely goes against the food pyramid it completely goes against the my plate but when we dig into how that was made and the and the legislation that led to that it was driven by dollars i mean when when our big grain companies and us sugar are the biggest lobbyists for whatever the current health um, recommendation is it should tell you something it it should scream I should look at this deeper because this doesn't make any sense.
0: Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. I've always said if they advertise it, don't eat it.
2: (laughs) Well, and that's what's interesting. So the MyPlate, it came out who um, funded the latest research that has that graph where like Cheerios is better than steak and all of that stuff. Well, they released who supported that. Coca-Cola was one of the largest contributors to that study. It's like, well, that totally makes sense. Drink more Coke, you know, because Coke is better for you than water. Um, That just blows my mind that that the the lay person, the average American, can't look at that and think, wait a minute, something's not right.
0: Yeah, who paid for that study? What's that? Who paid for that study? That's what you always have to. Oh, studies have yeah. shown. Well, who paid for that study? That should be your very first question every time.
2: Well, that's totally accurate. And that's so that was there was a study that came out just two years ago, well, three years ago, and it said that there weren't any um, nutritional differences between grass fed and grass finished cattle and feedlot cattle, and that grass fed cattle were actually worse for the environment than feedlot cattle. Well I went and 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 went through the painstaking process of actually reading the study and what I figured out is when they were talking about CO two emissions and, and methane and greenhouse gases the numbers were based on the age of the average feedlot cattle when it's butchered which is 14 to 16 months versus the age of the average grass-fed and finished cattle which are 20 to 30 months solely on the the months or the days that they were alive there was nothing in it that was that said anything about planting corn cultivating corn, spraying corn, harvesting corn, drying corn, hauling corn, grinding corn, feeding corn. It was all based on the age of the animal. I'm like, well, this is very obvious that a cow that has walked from pasture to pasture its entire life has never even been in a trailer other than the one trip that it takes to the butcher is going to have a much smaller carbon footprint than the animal that has hundreds of thousands of pounds of fertilizer hauled out to the fields and hundreds of thousands of pounds of grain hauled to it. And then is in a truck for 1,250 miles. The the numbers aren't right. And it's completely based on who it was funded by And it was funded by a huge portion of it was the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and lo and behold, almost a third of their board members are out of the four multinational
0: packers companies. Well, they're just the NCBA is just the mouthpiece for the packers, and it's that's exactly
2: right. When they merged the, the the. National Cattlemen's Association with the National Beef Association, it completely went to hell. And unfortunately, the talking points of the Packers have been so strong and they've done such a good job capturing the mind of the cow-calf guys on the end. I have some people that I consider good friends of mine who will literally denounce everything I have ever said or done or my successes because there's no quality in grass finished beef. It has to be fed grains or byproducts or soy or something for it to be any good. And because I'm selling direct to consumer, I am eroding any potential of them ever being profitable because I am undermining what it is that they're trying to do.
0: That's right. They, and they don't stay sell. With us.
3: Stay with us, everybody.
4: We'll be back talking with Jason
3: Rick in just a few minutes. A woman on the radio talks about revolution when it's already by.
5: You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code repub one zero. that's R-E-P-U-B-1-0
4: Subscribe to the Freedom Times monthly newspaper published since 1985 that's right, 1985 the Freedom Times pulls no punches and observes no sacred cows or taboos the perilous times we live in are too critical for anything but honest discussion of America's plight the Freedom Times is the antidote to the lies and distortions of the fake news media. There's no better way to inform and enlighten Americans than by reading The Freedom Times each month. New subscribers may sign up at a special rate of just $29 for one year or $55 for two years. Subscribe online by going to AmericanFreedomNews.us or mail your subscription to The Freedom Times, P.O. Box 218, Wildwood, Pennsylvania, 15091. That's the Freedom Times, P.O. Box 218, Wildwood, Pennsylvania, 15091. Support America's best patriotic newspaper and one of the very few left by becoming a subscriber to the Freedom Times today.
6: I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures' meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom of the barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you've definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly-principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. But I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're gonna deliver straight to your door.
5: Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended.
1: I can I hear you. Right uh, can you hear me, Patricia?
0: Yeah, I sure can. Go ahead, Don.
1: Okay. Yeah, welcome back to the Freedom Times News Hour. We're talking with Jason Rick, a rancher from the western slope of Colorado, and also uh, my fellow co-host, Patricia Aiken. Yeah, I'm still on, but I'm sort of just sitting back and listening because... Um, Jason's fascinating to listen to, and, of course, this whole topic is right down Patricia's wheelhouse as well. So I know when to sit back, shut up, and listen. But uh, (laughs) before you two continue uh, this great conversation, I do want to ask a few general questions to Jason. Um, First of all, I'll just ask him rapid fire here. How big is your ranch? Uh, Are there other ranchers in your area there in Colorado that are uh, raising cattle the same way you are? I mean, is it catching on? And I guess the most important one is, I live in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's not too many ranches around here. I love beef, uh, but it's gotten very expensive in the grocery store, so I don't buy it very often. But if I, when I do want to buy beef, is there any way I can buy it in this, where I live, uh, that's been raised close to the way you do?
2: Well, I'll start with the first thing. How big is our ranch? So I own... Our family owns no land. We, we live on my mother-in-law's ranch and it's 260 acres and uh, I pay a cash lease for it. But right now we control about 4,000 acres total. Um, I have 16 properties and 11 different landowners that I lease land from. And, and it's all different kinds of leases. Some of them are, you know, wealthy absentee landowners that pretty much gave me the keys to the kingdom and said, keep the fence up, keep it looking green, do what you do, um, and it's yours to play with. Some of them are widows. Their husbands were cattle ranchers, and they need the residual income to help them with their Social Security to survive. So I pay a cash lease to them or a production lease based on how many tons of hay that I could raise or days of pasture that I can get out of it. Um, and some of them are... They're a little harder to get along with. They're they are wealthy, affluent people. And with them, it's more of a, um, a royalty and serf kind of situation where I tolerate them because they're integral to my operation, but every day I'm looking for a property to replace that property with just because sometimes a heartache is worth, is way more expensive than the grass is worth. Um, and so, yes, there are some other grass fed and grass finished consumption to plate operations around here. There's actually one who's a really good friend of mine, uh, husband and wife, um, Princess Beef is the name of their outfit. And they're like me. They don't ship beef, but they do uh, service all of the state of Colorado. And so they do local pickup in Hotchkiss and then delivery to the Front Range in the fall when they start to butcher, similar to what I do. And then there are a handful of other operations that buy feeder calves out of the commercial market and then finish them on grass and market direct-to-consumer and supply some small grocery stores. Um the problem with that is oftentimes I see that they've bought sick calves of mine. If I have a calf that gets sick and that needs to be doctored, I will nurse it back to health and then immediately sell it out of the herd at the local sale barn into the commercial market, knowing I wouldn't want any of my customers to eat any of that beef that's had an antibiotic or an anti-inflammatory. And so, but yet they're still marketing it the same as, as mine and charging the same prices for something that I know has been treated. And um, so that that's why we do literally conception to plate. We raise our own bulls, and I also use some artificial insemination for some of these high-performing uh, grass-finished genetics, which sometimes work and sometimes don't. So the biggest focus for us is locally adapted cattle. And that's really the core of our group is a lot of cows that have been born and raised for generations here on the western slope of Colorado. Because the one thing that we fight is elevation. Like our home place is at 7,000 feet, and we graze all the way up to 10,000 feet. And so you have some altitude sickness, um, which is called... um, Brisket disease is what is what the, the lay name is for it. It actually ends up being a pulmonary hypertension, which leads to heart failure. And so we actually have a vet from Colorado State University comes out and we test all of our cattle with um, a called a PAP test, pulmonary artery pressure test. We actually go with a big choke card needle in their juggler, thread this catheter through their heart into their pulmonary artery, and, and read the pressures on an oscilloscope. And anything that's essentially over 50 inches of mercury, we cull. And anything other than that, we keep in our herd. That way we don't have to worry about anything suffering from brisket disease. And so since we also market high-altitude-raised, uh, foraged, backgrounded bulls that we sell all over the West, Western United States, um, that's that's a way to help us market those bulls as well. Um, but there's way more conventional cattlemen and cow-calf guys around, and they oftentimes kind of look down their nose at me until I tell them what we get for our butcher beeves and how quickly the market grows and how there's a lot more uh, capacity all over the state and all over the western United States. So I've been convincing more and more of them to save a few calves to feed, to market, direct to consumer, just to help insulate them from the crazy swings that happen in the cattle market. Because, I mean, you can go from having a 750-pound calf one year to a 950-pound calf to a 1,400-pound calf and then back to $700 in, you know, the course of four or five years. Whereas if you're, let's say, you're going to be selling them at $4.50 a pound um, hanging weight and someone else pays the processing that's considerably better and that price is going to be the same year after year after year after year
1: um, How much do your customers pay? I, I'm just curious what they pay compared to what say a grocery store would charge and, and why why has the I mean everything's gone up, inflation's very high the last few years since Joe Biden took over but uh, why and beef is beef in particular so darn expensive now?
2: Well, there's, that, there's, a, there's a, a lot of factors contributing to that fact. Number one, we have four multinational packers who control 85% of all protein in the country. That's chicken, pork, and beef. And the packers dictate through their contracts what the grocery store charges. And so they are able to fix it I mean when, when we when we have multinational packers making record profits year over year over year and the government just absolutely refuses that there's any sort of price fixing happening and then when they finally do investigate and find that there was an issue a sixty thousand or sixty million dollar fine and they just pay it Like, they don't care. That's just part of business because they made $300 I mean, that's just a clear indication that, that the whole thing is fixed. And so, for me, when you're buying a quarter of a beef or a half a beef or a whole beef, you're getting some of all of the cuts, right? So, let's say the average comes out to $10 a pound for everything. So, you're essentially paying $10 a pound for the ground beef which you can buy in the grocery store for $6.99, but you're also paying $10 a pound for the fillets, which are $65 a pound in the grocery store. So really it evens out across the board, but it also forces you to eat nose to tail. Whereas the people that just eat ground beef, I oftentimes will have that available for them. And the people that just eat ribeyes, it forces them to try all the rest of the steaks and the other meat, whether it's fajita meat, stew meat, figure out how to cook a brisket or a roast um, and and tongue and heart and liver and, you know, all of those organ meats as well if they want them. Because the other thing that we've started doing is a, is a primal blend. So it's ground beef that has organ meat added into it. So you have all the benefits of organ without having to have, stinking up your house, cooking liver, you know, or even that sometimes metallic taste that liver has. Because you put an ounce of that in with a pound of ground beef, and it's all mixed together for you. And so you get all the benefits, and you can't even tell the difference.
0: Oh, that's brilliant.
1: Yeah.
0: What, uh, um, and so, and I guess the, I the get
1: last back my question you store, My grocery store with, question, with the, no, Jason. Well, uh, how, let, me, let, let me saying. And, and, Okay,
2: go ahead. Let me answer what you said because you asked how can you source meat that's raised the way you want it raised near you? You go to right. beefinitiative.com, you search under producers and you find any of them that are close to you because their phone numbers or their email addresses are listed on the beefinitiative.com website under producers and you call them or you email them or you text them and ask you, "Hey, can I come see how your animals are cared for?" And if they say no, then obviously they're doing something they don't want you to see. Uh, If they say yes, you have the questions to ask them, like, what do you feed them? What kind of byproducts? What is your vaccination protocol? Do you use antibiotics? All of those basic questions so you can be an informed consumer, they should have answers for you right off the top of their head because if they're truly trying to do what's best for the animals, which is best for the consumer, they should have all that information at the top of mind.
0: Yeah, I believe Amos Miller is out in Pennsylvania as well, isn't he, Jason?
2: Yes, he is. Of course, I don't know if he's back in business or not. I mean, he went to to butchering exotics and milking camels to circumvent the USDA. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, he's been he's been in a battle, that's for sure. But I think I'm, i I looked on his website, and I believe he's he's selling again. So, awesome. Yeah, but that's that's the thing. No, I I always tell people know thy rancher. You really true have story to, Yep. exactly so, so you know, back your cattleman's newspaper I just want to tell people when I ran a cattleman's newspaper uh, cattlemen would, then were telling me that was back um, 2016 and cattlemen then were telling me they would get the price they were getting for their animals then from you know from the packers you know through that line is the last time they got that little for them uh, Ground beef was a dollar and a quarter a pound in the grocery store. So now that it's six and seven dollars a pound in the grocery store, where where is that margin going? Well, it's going all to these multinational packers, the four of them. It's just um, and there's there's laws against it on the books. There's a Stockyard and Packers Act, and if the uh, Secretary of the uh, USDA would just follow that law. We wouldn't have these problems, but they thumb their nose at it, don't
2: they? Well, yeah, and that's totally accurate. If, and if you look at what happened, what, why we passed the, the um, Stockyards and Packers Act, at that time, you had eight Packers controlled 55% of the protein then. And so they stepped in to say, oh, we have a monopoly, we need to break this up. But what we have found is when government gets involved in rights regulation, it's typically at the behest of the lobbyists. So we have the lobbyists of the Packers then help write the legislation, which then gave more power to the Packers. So it actually happened the opposite way. And that's what happens with so much of this lobbying power, no matter what it is. It isn't the, the farmers and ranchers that are helping write it. It's the processors and the end um, processors that are, that are writing the legislation. So every time there was a, an amendment to that act, which has happened five or six times, it gave more power to the packers and essentially stripped all of the power away from the front-end producers. And so they've been able to get more and more and more and more control. Um, And they turn a blind eye because when they're stuffing tens of millions of dollars in our legislature's pockets, why would they do anything different? Why would they bite the hand that feeds them? because that's just how corrupt the system is and and it gets right. further and further away. So so of course uh they, so they take Let me, let me, about let, me all
0: let me interrupt you for just a second. I want to introduce you to uh to a caller. Uh Richard, welcome to the Freedom Times News Hour. I, I know you've got some things you've been a cattleman. Talk to Jason. Yes.
5: Yes, uh, I was just going to make a plug for good ranchers because you asked about Pennsylvania. I think they ship all across the nation, but uh they have the same ethics in uh their beef and i just got my uh
1: my order first order a while back and it's excellent
5: excellent beef
1: you say good ranchers yeah. is that the it, is it goodranchers.com or is that just the yes, a, yes a, it, it right? is okay
5: yes okay. it is they they partner with uh other ranchers and ship from them closest to you so yeah it's awesome. good steak Thank you. That's how are
1: the prices? Just out of curiosity, I mean, I know Omaha steaks. I'm sure that's all processed, but it, it's very expensive. I mean, is it? I mean, how, compared to the grocery store, which is expensive enough as it is, is it more expensive to, to buy that way from good ranchers? and know it is,
5: but
1: yeah, what's peace of mind worth, though?
5: You know, it's like um, they they did no antibiotics and no mRNA, and I think the Australians started using mRNA in their beef, and. It's um,
1: it supports other people, other ranchers with the same ethics. Yeah, I understand. I mean, Jason said. I mean, you you know, it's you're paying for better health and peace of mind. So, yeah, I understand.
5: And uh, they finish off. uh,
1: They finish off
5: uh, with non-GMO feed too. Also, so it's uh, all natural. Best steak I've had in a long time. Mm. Sounds good.
0: All right. (laughs) Well, thanks, thanks, Richard. And um, there's other producers. There's people like Nourished by Nature. That's Paul Brown, Gabe Brown's son. They they ship Mm -hmm. nationwide. Jason, how come you only deliver in Colorado? Tell people why, please.
2: Well, because my focus is feeding my neighborhood. And, of course, because we've gone global, my neighborhood is the whole state of Colorado. We're finding that if you're eating stuff, that breathes the air that you breathe and each grass that grows in the soil that you walk on, you are all part of each other's microbiome. And here in the state of Colorado, you know, we have everything from from sandstone, cliff deserts on the west border, to grasslands, sand hills on the east border. And so everything that is interacting with the soil and pulling up the nutrients from our soil I want to keep all of that in this state, and I want every rancher to do that as well. I mean, there is so much money to be made shipping beef, but all I'm really doing is making the shipping companies wealthy. Sure, I'm making a little money as well, but I want my customers to put in the sweat equity to number one, come out and tour their farm and ranch if they're available, or come and meet with me at a meetup on the front range and and cuz i always want to take a selfie and i want everyone to shake their rancher's hand i want them to have that intimate relationship with their food provider because i consider myself a healthcare provider if people are choosing to support me and what i do something that i'm passionate about and i pour my heart and soul into i want them to have a little sweat equity in that tran in that transaction and that way if there's ever a problem there is a face with a product. It's not a website. It's not just a phone call. There's a face with that beef and that's that customer service, which I just can't emphasize enough. Everyone spent so much energy outsourcing technologies to someone else. I still operate the way that my grandfather did, with a handshake and a smile, and you look that person in the eye, because that's how I've taught my kids to interact with other humans, and, and I want all of my customers to feel the same way.
0: Well, awesome. You know, there's two things that I think really um, contribute to the price of beef uh, when you get someone that's direct-to-consumer. Number one, they don't accept any subsidies. I know Paul Brown told me that they turned down $80,000 a year in subsidies. I mean, that makes a real difference to the bottom line. And number two, uh, regeneratively grown agriculture is has 2,000 times more nutrient density than commercially grown, conventionally grown. Am am I right or wrong, Jason?
2: That's totally accurate. You know, and that's what I tell everyone is we, we, the legacy that we leave is the land that we leave behind. If if we made the most money because we're spreading synthetic fertilizer and we were just... um, Growing the most forage that we could no matter what, if we were overgrazing the land, we could raise way more head of cattle on those 4,000 acres. But we would leave this degraded desert landscape for the next generation. I want to leave it better. I want to leave it lush. I want to leave it improved, more carbon in the soil. And that doesn't necessarily cost money. It just costs sweat equity. But the real cost is... The, the the downstream multi-generational negative effects of, of or industrial farming. I mean, every time you work a field, you're losing topsoil, and it takes millions of years to make that topsoil by microbes digesting rocks to make more dirt, and then from the top, from plant residue going down, whereas all of the neighbors that plow their fields up every five to seven years and they're spreading tons and tons and tons of salt because that's what synthetic fertilizer is Is it is just salt that kills soil bacteria, kills microbes, kill mycorrhizae. I mean, then it takes decades for it to recover. Well, we really don't have decades if we're talking years and seasons of productive use in topsoil with how quickly it's being degraded.
0: That's right. And, you know, carbon sequestering is a big topic, and there's some people that raise cattle this way just so they can get carbon uh credits, like in Australia, places like that offer that so to all the vegans out there, no God bless you i I'm, I'm not one of them, but um they think that that cows are are creating you know problems with methane and that, but I say that doing it your way is actually putting more carbon back into the soil where it belongs.
2: It absolutely is. And the methane, the emit is part of a natural CO2 cycle anyway. So they're taking plants that have mined minerals out of the soil, and they then in turn make it into high-nutrient-dense high protein or a new calf or milk. And sure, they belch some of it out, it goes into the atmosphere, but it is slightly different than the methane that's emitted from coal beds or um, biodigesters or even the ocean, because that's one thing that we have to talk about is all of the swamps, you know, mangrove swamps, all that stuff, emit a tremendous amount of methane, actually way more than animal agriculture. But if we flip that on its head and we look at what monocrop agriculture to raise the soy protein, the pea protein, and the grains, quinoa, et cetera, for the vegans, when you put chisel in soil, you're killing the earthworms, the dung beetles, every little critter in the soil, right? And then you plant this monocrop agriculture and you have to spray it to kill the thrips and well, Jason, any other This has trigger. been a
0: fabulous conversation, but we are out of time. Please promise you'll come back sometime.
2: You know it. I am so passionate about this. All I want to do is to help everyone onto the arc that we're building through our practices.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so I, much, I learned everybody. a lot. It's been a, it's been a great hour. Everybody, check I'm out the Freedom You're having fun. So- Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease Off drop and lift? What in the world is an Ease Off drop and lift? Our Ease Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. cows too. Ease off LLC 417-932-6419. You
5: can't handle the truth.
1: You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit republicbroadcasting.org today because you can handle the truth.